We take a single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Ben. And tonight we're going to be looking at the Blake 7 episode, Sand, which I will say is the last episode by Tanith Lee. The green planet Vern has something the Federation thinks is important, but they don't know what it is. Five years ago, they sent an expedition, and they all died. Now, Commissioner Sleer, a.k.a. Servalin, wants to know what it is, because she thinks it's important, too. Meanwhile, the crew of the Scorpio have discovered that the Federation think that the planet Vern has something important, even if they don't know what it is. If the Federation thinks it's important, even though no one knows what it is, then Avon and the gang think it's even more important that they get it first. The race is on. Sleer gets there first, but her ship crashes. Tarrant is beamed down, but the Scorpio's computers pack up, including Orak, immediately afterwards, and they're unable to bring him back. On the planet, pretty much everyone is killed, except for Tarrant and Sleer. It is the sand of Vern that is alive, and it lives off the bodies of humans and such. It wants to keep those two alive so they can make lots of little baby livestock. It even looks as though they might just get started, but Sleer's tears are lethal to the sand, which doesn't help Tarrant and Sleer at all, but on the Scorpio, Avon also reasons it out and causes the Scorpio to start a rainstorm, killing the sand and allowing Tarrant and Sleer to escape with just their tender memories. Okay, um... <clears throat> sand? Uh, Tanith Lee, who, who wrote the lovely uh, Sarcophagus, uh, which is I recall we, we thought very highly of, and uh, an episode that I've been frankly dreading. Um, wh- <laughs> what'd you think? Okay, first off, I'm thrilled that this was Tanith Lee's last episode. <laughs> that I, I could not be happier. Second, and here's the weirdest part of I all, I actually had to... Go ahead. No, wait, wait, I had to watch this episode twice. Uh-huh. Because I was utterly shocked that I didn't hate it. Yes! Yes! That was my reaction. I didn't watch it twice. But that was exactly my well, reaction. I had, to, I, I, got, I had to watch it a second time. Like, no, I no, I, I must, no, I have to hate this episode. <laughs> but So I watched it a second time and went, no, I, I didn't hate this one. I got three quarters of the way through this. I, I, I remember this episode being absolutely dire. The, the whole Servalan and, and Tarrant kissy face nonsense. And... Uh, you know, I'm three quarters of the way through the episode. And I'm going, you know, this is actually okay. This this is mm-hmm. uh, this is not as horrifically awful as I remember it to be. And I, I'm I'm all right with this episode. I mean, there's a few things, but by and large, it was like eh, it was okay. <laughs> yeah, I I was really stunned. I mean, I'm I'm not even going to say pleasantly surprised. I was shocked that I thought it was okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, the thing that, that what what holds, you know, in my memory, obviously, is the Tarrant Servalan thing, which, right. you know, there's never been any indication of that whatsoever. There's always been kind of this Servalan Avon thing. Servalan Avon thing. In fact, I could have sworn in my memory, I, 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 I seem to remember some 
thing along those lines where they were both kind of like stuck on a plant or something. And, and, and I thought this would have been it. I never thought it would be servant and tyrant. That was bizarre. It was. I mean, I could... Now, you know, say what you will about Tarrant, but my guess is, and I'm certainly not an expert, my guess is Servalon probably thinks he's decorative. So, and she seems to like her boy toys a lot. So, you know. Oh, that's true. I could kind of see it. I, 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 I could kind of see it, especially she's in this vulnerable place, which I want to talk about with, with the head of the expedition, the dead expedition, being her lover, um... You know, finding him dead, and and so she's—I don't know—is this the death rebound, or is this the? I'm not—I'm not quite sure what the motivation is for those two to start kissing and stuff. I wouldn't say it's a death rebound, but uh, he's been on that planet for some time, mm-hmm. quite some time. So she's had plenty of opportunity for her boy toys. So I think you – know, I, I don't think that was any rebound oh, whatsoever. Oh, I, I, think, I think that she has been away from him from even – I mean, he was dead on the planet for five years. But I got the Yeah, impression, but she didn't know that, did she? I think she knew – she suspected She knew something it. was up, she suspected but I, I was never – dead. I think – Okay, I, think I, I never got that. Um, I, I, I think they said, you know, in his last entries, he's getting – he got sick. She did say that uh, after the woman killed herself. And that was even on the ship when they were flying in that she made that comment about he didn't get sick until after she died or she killed herself. So, But but I got kind of the impression from the way she gave Tarrant the whole he was, you know, when I was a junior grade officer or something like that. Or I forgot her in the academy or wherever it was. So I kind of got the impression that what they were going for here was that this was like her first love. And she yeah. traded him off for her path to power. And then subsequently, you know, all of her boy toys along the way have been literally just that. They were either power trips or recreational or whatever it happens to be. But this was the guy that she once genuinely had emotions for. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they went their separate ways. She found out he'd been on this planet and uh, she decided to go search out because because something we don't know what it could possibly is, but censors said there was something there, and we really are interested in the unambiguous, ambiguous thing that the censor said might be there that we want to find out about. Um, which, it, to me, is also the weakest part of the story. I, I, I can't quite figure out why everybody wants to go to Vern. Right? That's true. That's the one thing that did not really make a lot of sense. I mean, it didn't destroy or take me out of the out of the episode but it did feel like something of a stretch i mean i could sort of see why um crew the scorpio was going to go well the federation's interested then we're interested right which but right but that's that's as far as it goes as far as i'm concerned right everything i got out of this story was that they'd done some sort of a survey and that they're their instrumentation detected a faint life form and something interesting. And so they decided to send a research thing to find out what the something interesting was. But it wasn't like, you know, we found a, some sort of a strange energy particle wave that we might make a weapon or something. It, it was so ambiguous about what it was. And then the only thing that we got out of it was later on, Terrence says, that's, that's Vern's secret, a preservative it keeps things supple and fresh. Like, are, are 
Is that really what it was, or is that you just trying to come up with something to fill in the blank now that you know that the pl- <laughs> that part, those parts didn't work for me? I I, mm. I much prefer. All right, no, I'll t- I'll take that back. Let, let's. <laughs> the Federation has got some rum plans, um, like making those animals that are radiation resistant. Oh yeah. For- oh yeah. So in that, about that. So in that case, there we actually knew what it was, and that was really stupid. So maybe it's better if they didn't tell us what it was that they were interested in, so they didn't have to come up with something that wasn't really stupid. <laughs> Stupid. Mm. <laughs> Somehow I don't think that worked. <sighs> oh, it was worth it. It was worth a try. Um, well, I don't. I, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of. Uh, we're not going to end this episode this quick, but there's not a whole. That's lot of a, but depth. there's not a lot. There's not a whole lot of depth in the episode, so we can no. We can um, just pick some stuff apart at random. Um, wow, did they go heavy on the CSO? Yes, they did. That was a um, heavily rendered, well, rendered is the wrong word, <laughs> um, superimposed planet. Mm-hmm. That I haven't seen anything that, oh, heck, I'll use the word bad, since uh, Underworld? Ooh. On Doctor Who? Ooh, you're being kind. Uh, you, think this is, was- you think this is worse than Underworld, the 100% well. caves? Those were really bad. Yeah, those were pretty hideous. Yeah, this is close. I, yeah, this is close. You know, the, but the weird thing about it is that I just maybe I'm used to it now. I mean, even when it's like really, really bad, I just have this certain expectation of well, it's the BBC, yeah. and then and then it's it's just I dismiss it. I might make the I'll make the initial observation, but then after that is like, oh, whatever. But do you think back to Cygnus Alpha? Okay, you know, a quarry. I think a quarry could have done this. Um, maybe they just didn't have the budget for even going to a quarry. But I mean, they—that's uh, what I'm kind of thinking. They've done some good that, work in quarries. <laughs> uh, yeah, just look to Doctor Who and even Blake Seven. I mean, they've really exhausted their use of going to a quarry, um, even in this season. However, oh, yeah, yeah, true. Space Rats was in a quarry. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Um, but. I don't know. You know, we're getting towards the end of the scheduled season. Maybe they were just kind of thinking, okay, how can we really do this one on the cheap? Yeah, it could be. I, I just didn't think that there was. I didn't think that it was weird enough of a planet to to warrant it. Like I say, looking at Cygnus Alpha, where they stayed in a quarry, they shot at night. Um, I think that was every bit as effective as a weird alien planet. In fact, one of the more effective uses of a quarry that I can remember in a BBC show. Um, and this one, you know, it wasn't much weirder than that. So I think they could have done with a location and been a little... Perhaps, but like, I, I mean, geez, I mean, with all the bad stuff that I've seen uh, on Doctor Who um, and, and in the show and, you know, just, you know, British programming, sci-fi programming from this era... I mean, the visual effects are just, they, they can really be terrible. And I've just come to accept it. Um, I don't find myself overanalyzing them anymore. Mm. It, uh, unless there is something there that I find to be just outright 
um, contradictory to the plot, uh, and I didn't sense that. I mean, it, it it just it just looked bad, but it didn't feel bad in terms of story content. Hmm. All right. So that's why I was able to. I just I saw it and I went, heh, whatever, and I moved on. But you're right; it was awful. Yeah, it's just you know, I when I when they do a full when they do a full CSO set, I want to see something that they can't do with polystyrene rocks or a quarry. I want to mm. see bizarre alien crystal structures or you know something that. When the the designer just sat down and said, "We need an alien planet. I've got to have these. I've got to have this stuff." And they go, "No way. No way can we do a set like that. We're going to have to go with a separation, and and put it in." But this was a black starry sky and some rocks. Yes. <laughs> like you, yeah. That that I guess that and, was my point. Is like it, there well, was nothing honest, imagination you, back there. No, there's no imagination at all. It's very it's very flat. And and I will admit that. There was one brief moment where I thought, is that the inside decoration of the cave? Mm. I thought, oh, we're in a cave and that and someone painted it. <laughs> I mean, because it just it does look that ridiculous. No. And and uh, even um, even the I hate to call it visuals because it's not. But even what they were showing was, yes, the, the, OK, that sky is just it's ludicrous. But again, it's another one of these things where I went, eh, it's the BBC. I found it amusing. I moved yeah, on. Yeah, it didn't, it wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't see fit to do more than laugh at it a little bit and go on um, if it weren't for, uh, you know, filling up the time. No. <laughs> yeah. So, Investigator Reeve, interesting little story going on there with him and Servaland. They're, they're on this expedition. I guess he's some sort of a hot shot. He seems like it, doesn't he? Expediter guy that gets the job done, and he certainly seems to be putting the moves on Servalan. Like, kind of, yeah, especially since he uh, kind of outright admits that he knows who she is. Right, well, he does that about halfway, not halfway through the episode after they get stranded on the planet. So, you know, all the time they're on the ship, he's kind of making these sort of overtures to her, like, maybe we should get a little friendly. I mean, he doesn't say it like that, but it, it, there's a sort of... There's a sort of vibe to it, and obviously she's putting him off, um, and and very off-putting um, yeah. to him. Uh, and then halfway through, you know, he reveals that he knows she's Servalam. Now, everything we know about her throughout the course of the four series is that she's basically killing everyone who recognizes her. Correct. So this guy recognizes her. It sounds like maybe he's going to try to blackmail her. Tarrant kills him, sort of. And, and then we find out. And the stories. And then that, that subplot is just done. Servalan goes, well, well great, she, you, you killed an enemy. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we kind of, then we find out that, I, I take that as, uh, thank you, Tarrant. You just, you know, you, you spared me uh, the, 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 the agony, if you want to, um, of having to do that myself. Well, I think it's also her cruel sense of humor you know you just killed oh, somebody yeah. who was a de- threat to me thank you hey <laughs> yeah <laughs> kind of thing you know yeah that, that's that's also her because servalent's not a nice woman um in, in you know in the grand scheme of things there is a great line 
There's a great line in this episode that she has. It was it was so good I wrote it down. Where I think Investigator Reeve said something like, you know, I, I know women like you or something like that. And she says, there are no women like me. Women like me. me. I am oh, unique. I am unique. That makes me yes. rather dangerous. And it's true. Yeah. And um, it's, I wouldn't say it's out of character for her, but it sounds it like a line felt that yeah, it, Tanithley would write for her. Does yeah, that make it, sense? It, 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 yes, it does. Um, I, I wouldn't feel it. I, I, I can't call it inappropriate, but something about it just felt off. Not, I, I don't know. I just, I just, could, it, it just didn't seem right. But I, I don't know. I, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's very hard for me to define. There, there is a kind of. Okay, we can, we, we can, we can go here because this is the whole point. Um, and I will, I will first and foremost say I will completely and absolutely agree with the premise that women are underrepresented as writers in science fiction television. I mean, yeah. All, all you have to do is Agreed. To just, just look at the list of credits and then, you know. The proof is in the pudding. Yeah. And so th- there's, a, there's a good argument that says, you know, if we're not getting storytelling from all points, different points of view, then we are getting a, um, a, a filtered view of the world. Mm-hmm. This episode and Sarcophagus have a very different dynamic on the men-women relationships in these episodes than we get from all the others. Mm-hmm. So there's the argument that says maybe even if it, if it, even if it feels wrong to you or if it feels wrong to me, that's not the point. The point is, is that we're not getting an echo chamber fed back to us of the ideas and the concepts and the preconceptions that we already have. You're being exposed to someone else's take on the way the world works. And Tanith Lee being the only female writer who's written for Blake seven is the only one that gets to fill in this role. And her episodes do stand out. They are, they are different. I don't like the story. Uh, Yeah. But oh god no sir, no that was awful. But you know again there is that sort of well I don't even know what to call that one. But in this one, if we have seen an evidence of say a little bit of romancey stuff, let's say aftermath where Avon and Servalan are trapped in the base, and there's a little bit of seductive. You know, toying, Servalan's kind of toying with Avon, and Avon swoops in for the kiss and then throws her to the floor in a studly, manly kind of way. I feel like Servalan was completely in control of Tarrant (laughs) in this episode. She was Uh, the one bringing all of the... Even if Tarrant is the one that moved in for the kiss... Oh, no, she was in control. She did that because she worked him. Yeah. And and I don't mean that in in a... sly, female, you know, sort of stereotypical seductress kind of way. No, this is her, her personality just was just work and parent. Uh-huh. Who, of course, is easily, <laughs> easily uh, I, control. I, it, yeah, I wouldn't think that would be too much of a challenge for her. Yeah. So, um. Now trying that on Avon, that's a different story. So, I mean, if, if nothing else, that would be a reason for us to have more female writers because other possibilities that you would not necessarily think of from your own point of view. 
we're we're all guilty of having our own point of view and yeah and, and it's you know frankly a lot of our point of view has probably been shaped by the TV we've watched and the TV we've watched has been written by men yeah that's that's an accurate statement <laughs> you know i mean uh, apart from say DC Fontana on Star Trek yeah but again that's the exception to the rule it is the exception to the rule and um so you know i wish they could um i wish they could entice more Wish they could invite more women into writing science fiction. I, it's a, I guess a topic well, for this, day as to how they do it. it but. Yeah, I think. I mean, and, and even then, this is we're talking early eighties. Uh, we we still weren't quite there yet in terms of equality. Are we there yet now? In, uh, no. Okay. No. In, I mean, in some areas, we're not. I mean, it's better. I think, but I'm sure it's, it's, yes. it's not there. I'm you know, sure it's it's, it's improved. It's improved a great deal since uh, since Tanith wrote this particular episode, and and even then that was you know when that was done that was an imp- an improvement from say 1960s. Mm. You know, we, shocker of all shockers, you got you know like a Verity Lambert who's running Doctor Who. You know, I'm sure that just shook um, oh, yeah. the BBC old you know suits to the core that you got a woman running a show like this. So we are seeing. Improvement. We are seeing more women uh, better represented in uh, in, in uh, you know sci-fi genre and, and fantasy genre writing. Is it full equality yet? Uh, no, but it, it certainly is an improvement. And I, and I think as more and more do uh, as equality, or as we better, as we more closely reach that goal of equality, you know, the quality of the writing will start to rise to the surface instead so it- of. You know, with with just the, the the amount that was available back at that time, I mean, you had to kind of you, you couldn't pick and choose. You just grabbed what you could find. So, do we have a chicken and egg situation here? Um, I, I my impression is that it is not just um, that it is not just that there aren't many women writing for science fiction television, but that there are not. As many women interested in writing for science fiction television, I would agree with that at the time. You know, is, but is then it's true, true now because I would still say it's. Probably, I don't think so. I think it's still probably eighty percent men writing science fiction for TV. Possibly, but it's gotten better, and I, you know, and I don't want to go into a big sidecar conversation, but I think what we're happen- what's happening now is that the whole concept of science fiction itself has achieved greater acceptance. Now, having that roll downhill, shall we say, to where we're seeing more equality in representation, it's that's still catching up. But I think part of the problem is you know, because sci-fi and fantasy was you know, only until just the last few years has it really gained any kind of mainstream acceptance so that it's now definitely – the pop culture of today. It was, I don't believe it, it wasn't back then. No, no, clearly not then. And because it wasn't back then, I think it made it even harder for women who maybe did have that passion for it. And I'm going to say that there were a lot of women that did, but because of the, the, the glass ceilings and all the barriers that were in place, a, because there were women and B, because this, this was considered a, a ridiculous uh, art form to write for. It, it just made it impossible. Men had an easier chance to kind of bulldoze through that because they were men. 
but with you know with women i i think that was just uh, an, an impossible thing to do you know and unless you just happen to be in the right place at the right time and maybe that was the case with uh with uh with our writer here hmm. maybe she just was in the right place at the right time as opposed to um pushing forward and breaking through those barriers and saying hey look at me notice me okay now yeah. i'm going to i'm going to take that and flip it just a little bit okay because um not saying any of that is invalid what you said what i said any of it i think i completely agree but there is also the subplot of well dual subplots of tarrant is the male who's going to survive because the sand determines he's the studliest and, yeah. and on the liberator on the scorpio it's killing villa yeah so that avon the studliest of the manliest can have his little harem going on the ship too that is very very 1970s fanfic oh. could it could it be more and i know and you know a lot of times when you look at uh, a lot of the the slash the for those who don't know the the erotic <laughs> fan yeah. fiction um a lot of it's written by women a, a that is true. Highlight number of those are written by women. That that is absolutely true. You are correct. Yes, I have observed that. And here is Tanith Lee, a professional writer, and she is putting what could only be a schoolboy fantasy. Yeah, up there on the uh, on the ship. It's like mm-hmm, I've got my little harem of girlies. It 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 isn't as it bad really as Ben plays- Steed. But, but it kind of no. has that it, it, from a different look. But it still has that same kind of almost distasteful. Uh, well, it was trashy. Okay, <laughs> trashy's good for it. It, I mean, it, it was it. trashy, you know, and that's that's sort of the bizarre shocker here. And and I wonder if, if there isn't some sort of psychological element that's well, it has to be that's playing into this to for for a woman at that time. And she, and I, I would say she, you know. Tanith, she, she wasn't the first one to do this. Mm-hmm. I don't. Th- I don't believe so by any stretch of the imagination. There's a bit of it in the sarcophagus too. Yeah, it is. Where they are, and, and may you know, maybe this is their way of not rocking the boat too much. I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of really weird psychological play that is at work here. But when when she goes to the stereotype, it's it's just really almost beyond the pale i mean it it is just it's it's not quite vile but it's just really trashy hmm. and disappointing in a way you know if that were written today oh yeah she oh she'd be you know raked over the coals for writing something that pandered like that because maybe that's it maybe it feels like maybe it feels like she's pandering to to certain preconceptions and maybe maybe to a specific audience but then Take that to the flip side. She's absolutely right. That's exactly what they do in animal husbandry. That is true too. Yeah. So, are she, is she is what she's doing here is reducing humans to animals, and is that the metaphor that she's going for? And then that's how we do it. Or is it is she applying it as a schoolboy fantasy? Or is it uh, or you know, <laughs> you know, some pent up pent-up desire she has for Paul Darrow. I, you know, it, it just, who knows? I, 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 
I don't know, and I can't read it. And there we go back to, you know, when you see other people's view on the world. Um, you get a you get a look at things that aren't necessarily the echo chamber that you would come up with in your own in your own mind. Okay, so um, Orac, love poems. Mm. Coincidence? Same is true with the computer on the planet. It's it's That's reading right. love things of love. Is that the sand influencing the computers? With some notion of romance because they're trying to do animal husbandry with the characters? Or is that... I, I I didn't get the impression that the sand was doing anything to make them um, romantically attracted to each other. No, no, not the sand, no. So, and it's making the computers malfunction, but I could understand that. It. Yeah, that I can sort of get. Malfunctioning towards love poems. Well, that that is I I I couldn't say on that. The malfunction, yeah, I can kind of get that. Um, The love poems, well, um, I'm I'm just simply going to attribute that to lack of imagination. (laughs) You know, and it it uh, who knows? I mean that that did seem weird, but and I don't know why, but it didn't bother me. It sort of amused me. Hmm. But not in what should have been a good way. I wasn't amused with that plot development. I was amused at that plot development. I, I would have been so much happier if there had just been a little indication that that the sand was somehow influencing them to be a little bit frisky. You know, if, if yeah, we get Tarrant and Servalan, and they do seem to be surprisingly friendly under the circumstances, considering they're mortal enemies. Well, if it could, like, emit, uh, like, an aroma or something, you know? I right. mean, I, I don't want to call it a pheromone, but you know what I mean. Right. We just saw something none of that, that on could the Liberator, have... though. No. True. Now, if we'd seen Avon make some sort of overtures towards Sulin or Dana, then I think it would have been very clearly put forward that the sand was influencing them, in addition to, you know, doing selective breeding. But we didn't see that, and then maybe that got cut out, maybe that just got lost in some variation of the draft, but I think that would have been... Frankly, it would have been more believable with Servalan and, and Tarrant, too. I, mm-hmm. You know, I found that... You know, if they'd been trapped there six months, maybe, but not... Eh, what, oh, an hour? not for the short... Oh, yeah, if... <laughs> oh, well, we're trapped. Uh, you know something? Hmm. <laughs> Let's get some noogie. Yeah. So... <laughs> uh, that part was a little... Um, and um, also... Sulin recounts a previous episode of Blake Seven. Now, how often do we ever see a Blake Seven episode? Wow. Reference an older We're, episode a, of Blake we, Seven. Yeah, a callback is rare. And of course, which episode did she call back? Sarcophagus. Oh God. <laughs> well, at least Tanith Lee remembers writing the episode. If not, if not anyone else. Well, Tanith is. I don't know. Is, is that? Tanith patting herself on the back. Or what? I don't know. I, don't know. I it, it was a little. It was a little contrived in in context too. The the fact that Sulin brought it up and was like, I seem to remember something about Callie uh, doing uh, being taken over by aliens, and maybe it's some leftover thing that that she did to you guys, and blah blah blah. It's like. Really, they they told you that story, and that's what you're pulling up as your that's possible. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> yeah. that's what you're pulling up as your possible crazy theory. Uh, I don't know. 
Oh, there's also the line about, um, oh, Tarrant, I'm just the girl next door. Yeah. Something like that. And and what would you do? And, and he'd go, I'd move <laughs> next door. Oh, oh bad line. Oh, it hurts bad so line. bad. <laughs> you know, we, and, he, and here it is. I mean, okay, so we're picking out all these things that just are really bad. And yet, why are we not hating this episode? I don't know. I think it was kind of an interesting idea. Possibly. I, I think that's what it was. If something's going on that actually makes us look at all these bad things and not have them take us out of the overall story experience. Yeah. It, it, it's because it's by not all a bad rights, story. It, it, it's just got some. It's got some really awkward. bad elements to it, and by you know, although they, by were, all rights, they were grown worthy. I mean that that line was terrible, yeah. but it amused me, and so maybe yeah, that's yeah, it. It's, it's, but that's so much of this episode. There are so many bad things that I found amusing, but not in all the right ways. You know, it's like, would you rather be laughed at or laughed with? You know, if, if I'm going to be amused by the story, it's because. The, the writer is clever and has given me something that I'm supposed to be amused with. I don't think that was intended here. Mm. I can't believe that was intended here. Because these are things, I mean, I, I'm being amused at all these things that are just bad. Yeah. Here's another one that kind of didn't go anywhere, but I felt like it was supposed to. Avon's probability squares. Oh. You know, the computers are down, they're trapped on the ship, Avon's a man of logic, and he breaks out his probability squares and he starts to explain it to Sulin. I think it was Sulin. Maybe it was Dana. I don't remember. But he was explaining that he was using it to way to work out what was going on and then eh, that didn't happen. It didn't go anywhere. I, I felt like it was supposed to be a teaching moment. You know, like uh, like early Doctor Who where they would teach you about static electricity with the Daleks. Here I felt oh, like they were okay. I, I felt like they were trying to introduce the concept of the probability square because Tana thought, "Hey, probability squares are probably pretty cool." And if I'm not mistaken, the uh, probability squares, I'm looking it up right now. I'm not sure these are the same thing. So I'm not even sure that's a real thing. It feels like it should be. How to read and work with probability squares. It's a thing. Mm. It has to be a thing. But, um, yeah, here's a probability square for working out heads or tails of a coin. It's only four squares. So if you think about I, it, there's only two choices. It's four squares. Two right. by two. I, so I, how big would the square have to be for Avon to be doing computational matrix work? Oh, well, it, yeah, it, <laughs> infinite. Yeah. Um. But I seem, you know, now that you now that you mention, I seem to remember uh, working with probability squares, and don't don't ask me why. But when for some ridiculous reason, my biology class in high school, genetics. we did a thing on. Yeah, I get it's yeah, it was under genetics. We did a whole square. thing on probabilities. It, it's a and, square called of um, is for genetic possibilities for the mutations as you pass down. Right. Yeah. So and I seem to remember that's when we kind of got we briefly touched probability squares at that point to use as some sort of uh, object lesson I suppose. Sorry, a punette square is a diagram used for partic- outcome of a particular cross or breeding experiment, which is interesting now that I think about it because that's exactly what we had going on here. Animal husbandry, 
right? Hmm. And and this is also a topic that would be associated with determining outcomes for offspring. It's almost like Tanith Lee was reading a book about this yeah, at about the time <laughs> she wrote this episode. You know, that's I, I laugh, but I mean that's exactly what writers do. You know, they they read something fascinating. They're like, "Oh, I could work this into a story," and they do because that's just you know how you do it. So no, it's a lack of imagination in some ways. Well, but at the same time, it, it's a way of showing. It's you're telling stories. You're 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 taking some knowledge and you're recontextualizing it for a larger audience. I, I don't. I don't. Um, well, I notice so I have a problem with it. Uh, I mean, we've seen Star Trek do that, I suppose, uh, from time to time, but. Unless you're a really crafty writer, and I question if Tanith is or not, is doing something like that it could feel like you're shoehorning in an idea. And that can kind of breed some of the things that you – know, some of the negative qualities that we've been poking holes at. Hmm. All right. Let's see. What else do we have here? There is uh, also, speaking in the in – the, uh, earlier vein there's the scene where avon wants to crash the ship into the atmosphere to create a rainstorm and mm-hmm. sulin and dana are both opposed to the idea and he argues and i forgot exactly what his point was but i think he he gave them just a good enough argument that they suddenly both snapped up and ran over to their consoles and you know not a further word we're gonna right. we're doing this and he said something to the effect of i take it you agree, and the response is, "How could we refuse? You are the dominant male." <laughs> <laughs> See, but that line was funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, it what? is. It was... I mean, that's 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 sarcasm. Yes, that's, you know, yeah, I, I get that. It, but again, it's still like, it kind of it makes me groan. <laughs> um, and you know, Tarrant um, Servalon takes the gun away from him because he's an idiot. Um, but she doesn't kill him. And of course, then everyone on the Scorpio is pissed off at him because he, he's been having a little thing with Servalan. And, mm. you know, they all, everybody walks away except for Avon. And, um, uh, and his comment to her is like, it's ironic. You could be the last man in her life. <clears throat> Not realizing that she, of course, got away. Yeah. And on the way out, you know, she is, she is, um, emotional talking to Tarrant. Or talking about mm-hmm. Taryn, she said, I had the gun, but I didn't kill you yet. But, you know. There was some honesty there. There was some honesty there. She let him go. Yeah. Even though she knows he's a mortal enemy. And, yeah. That was, um, again, a little bit out of character. But at the same time, why not? Why can't Servalin have emotions? Why can't she be more than just Which a kick-ass I conniving appreciate. commander? Yeah. I appreciate that because I don't like my villains necessarily being two-dimensional, especially with a series that has gone on this long. I mean, we're in, the, we're in series four now, and to give her some rounded edges, shall we say, I, I think it's a great idea. And But the only, the only downside to all of this is, are we going to be getting a reset button in terms of what we see in her character? By the by, the time the credits roll, I, I've never thought of I've never thought of Servalin as a two dimensional villain. She's always been 
I mean, well, she's dimensionally not the most, you know, we haven't got the depth of her life, but we definitely. Right. I mean, okay, s- two dimensional is a bit strong. I admit that. But we don't get, I mean, you know, when I say two dimensional, I mean, that's like saying she's shallow or something. I and mean, she's not. She's anything but. I mean, there is, there are some layers there, but we never get to explore them. Right. We're seeing a different facet of that character here. You know, we've we've we we get a little bit of it because she talks about the fact when she was eighteen. That was in my notes, so it was quite a while ago um, when he was her lover, and that obviously she really did love him. And then she seems to have developed a little bit of an emotion there for Tarrant. I don't think it's like a long term pining thing, but I think you know, I think he touched her in some way. And we've also seen, but the only other thing we've really seen about Servalon's life was with. Um, I'm going to remember this name. It's Kasarbi in Pressure Point, and she's doing payback, right? Because Kasarbi was her trainer at the academy and reported her for being a conniving, sneaky kid. And all these years later, she takes revenge on her, which shows that she's got, you know, not good emotion, but that, you know, she is vulnerable to not just a conniving plan, but but an emotional impact on her, on her thinking. And so, but those are really the only times we've seen it other than just, oh, and she's disgusted by, um, um, the planet and Gambit, which I cannot remember what it is. Oh, right at the top of my yeah. Head. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Uh, you know, I think that's it for, I think that's it for. But covered on the ground for something that is, Wow, for, for yeah. some, I mean that's that's just there's just not much there. Okay, seriously, it's kind of one of the better ones of series four so far. It is, yes. That's why I had to watch. I mean, I was going to watch it again today. If, you know, if I had time while I was at work. Um, sadly, I didn't because I I kept saying to myself, I, I there's got to be something here for me to really really hate. <laughs> I mean, I've I, got to find that one thing I can latch onto and say this is a real dog. But no, no, it is. It just isn't. It, it will not go down in history as one of the greatest, but it, it certainly is not. Well, in, in comparative, no, compared to everything we've had this season so far, this one's actually the shining light. A beacon in space. Space. The final yeah. frontier. Uh, <laughs> all right, maybe not. Uh, these are the voyages of the, of the Scorpio. garbage scow Scorpio. <laughs> I wonder what t- it's a space hopper. I think that no, it's a space hopper. Yeah. No, yeah, like, no, no, no it, what is it? Space? Is it space hopper? No, that was the little that was the right. little ships. There was a name for it. it was yeah, it had a name yeah, when we f- first meet it. Type of ship. Yeah, I can't remember what it is. Anyway, well, when we come back and look at Blake Seven again next time, it's going to be the episode Gold. Another one one word title. Hmm. All right, Ben, thank you for joining me. Oh, a pleasure. And listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. Cheers. Fusion Patrol is a Lone Locust production. Like us? Please consider becoming our sponsor at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. We'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Stop by and visit us at our website, fusionpatrol.com. Search for us on Facebook under Fusion Patrol. Check out our Twitter handle, at Fusion Patrol, or just send us an email at feedback at FusionPatrol.com. Please come join the conversation. Our music is Fight the Future by Amberwolf.